Hello, welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Lina Khatib, director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House. Among the projects she's leading is one examining the future of the state in the MENA region. And our conversation today is all about MENA leaders and leadership. Lina, welcome to the Digest podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Now, now look, there is a perception, certainly among Western governments, and I dare say many Western analysts and observers, that the Arab world really needs these strong authoritarian governments and leaders. How strong is that perception and, and what do you make of it? Well, unfortunately, this has been the status quo when it comes to relations between mainly the West or the international community as a whole and countries in the um, Arab region in general for decades. And I think this can be traced all the way back to the days of colonialism and mandates in which these external powers looked for loyalists who could, in a way, whip their supporters into shape and get them to behave in a way that serves the interests of these external powers. And also the days of looking at the region as being dominated by tribes and clans and feudal lords. Now, I'm not saying these dynamics did not exist in the region. Of course, of course they did and they do in certain places. However, there has been an exaggeration, first of all, of the role of, of these kinds of leaders and the viability of this style of leadership over the past few decades. So what I'm saying is when external actors look at the region in this way, it is rather out of touch with the current reality in the region where things have shifted quite significantly. So one big problem is that it seems that a lot of policymakers are stuck in time. They still think that the region is best served by uh, a traditional, very patriarchal uh, model of power and that this is the only thing that would get populations in line. But of course, this also means that for the West, there is this uh, model that has been quite dominant, which is looking at uh, so-called strongmen as being trusted uh, supporters that could be relied on to deliver the interests of uh, external powers in the um, Arab world, because these strongmen will, will ultimately have a sense of stability uh, permeate in the region. And of course, when we look at uh, the history of the region, especially in the last 10 years or so, we can see that this, this model um, has been proven to be largely false. But the problem is, unfortunately, even today, you will see examples of the so-called strongmen being still seen quite favorably by external powers. And examples of this can be seen with Haftar in Libya and also Sisi in Egypt, amongst others. Is there an element of racism in this perception? Well, I would say, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely about us and them. It's about this exotic other who comes from uh, a very different culture, you know, this, this kind of very simplistic uh, uh, look at the world that I actually wrote about in, in my first book many years ago. 
I mean, I was motivated to write the book at the time because I was disturbed by this binary and I wanted to challenge it. And here I am more than 10 years later talking about it. And of course, 10 years is nothing because roll back in history, Edward Said's Orientalism, you know, we've been saying the same things for decades now. And unfortunately, yes, uh, there is a racism issue involved for sure. Now, you've talked about 10 years back. Well, we're almost 10 years now from the Arab Spring. I mean, it did challenge that perception. Young Arabs in particular went into the streets demanding change. Looking at where we are today, do you think that the Arab Spring was a failure? Well, the Arab Spring is not a failure. <laughs> this is the thing. Um, for all the problems of the region that maybe the West, and I'm, I'm, when I say the West, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in general terms. I don't want to be stereotyping the West either. But in general, when I look at policy, because I'm someone who engages with uh, the Western policy community quite generally, I hear this a lot that uh, the Arab Spring has failed. And, and for all the region's problems, there was also this unrealistic expectation uh, at the height of the Arab Spring 10 years ago, that suddenly this region that had been subjected to autocracy for decades was going to be on the path uh, towards democracy in, in, in no time. Where in the world outside of this region, just you know, for comparison, uh, for comparison's sake, where have we seen countries move in a linear way towards democracy? Where have we seen countries have political transitions without setbacks? Where have we seen democracy happen overnight? Nowhere. So why would the region be an exception? So in a way, the Middle East and the Arab world in particular has been um, subject to two different types of stereotypical exceptional status. One is regarding uh, Arab exceptionalism as being this region will always have autocrats and it's the exception to democratic transition in the world. And the second exception was, in a way, thinking that, oh, yeah, and suddenly this can change. And if it doesn't change in a matter of, say, a year or two, then we deem the whole thing a failure. So I don't think the Arab Spring is a failure. I think we're still seeing the Arab Spring continue today, but in a very different way. Unfortunately, there have been setbacks. But when you zoom out and look at the landscape, uh, the odds were stacked against uh, these people who were protesting for rights. But the awareness that was raised uh, in 2011 continues until today. And we have to remember, even countries like, say, Lebanon, that had looked next door at Syria and, and the uh, unfortunate uh, set of circumstances that happened after its revolution there, this did not deter people in Lebanon from protesting in October last year. I would say the same about the people in Sudan, for example, who also saw how uh, certain countries that had started uh, protesting for rights ended up in a civil war, and still it did not deter them. So I would link all these things together. Uh, the Arab Spring will take a while. It will not have a linear impact that we will see anytime soon. However, there is a fundamental change in the region. In a lot of places, the wall of fear has been broken for citizens as they demand rights, and they are learning and watching uh, what's learning from and watching one another. But look, Lina, if we look at the Gulf states, 
many would argue that these ruling families have pretty much got it right. Uh, flawed, certainly, but uh, Bahrain accepted. They have the support of the majority of their subjects. Oh, that is uh, a, a rather <laughs> different model that is yet to be cracked. Uh, what's interesting is that all the uh, revolutions that have happened in the region in which rulers were deposed were mainly republics, um, or you have, of course, Libya. We are yet to see a royal family um, removed uh, as a result of protest. And some people are saying, well, it's because these royals know how to deal with their populations and um, are doing a better job than the, um, the republics. I would say definitely not. What we have in these monarchies is uh, rulers with varied uh, styles of leadership. But one thing that they all have in common is that they are all absolute monarchs. And so we are nowhere near uh, any model in these countries that really we can say is a model that is rights-based. It's not. It's a model that primarily is based around keeping these rulers in power regardless and they are models in which differences of opinion are not tolerated. I mean, for example, if you look at Saudi Arabia today, yes, people have a bit more uh, breathing space than before because women can drive and there's entertainment permitted in the kingdom. But at the same time, there are still uh, women activists who are being tortured in prisons. There is no space for anything that could be uh, called civil society. And the same issue um, applies in different uh, other countries in the Gulf in varied degrees. So I would say uh, the problem actually exists in, in, in different places um, in the region in different ways. But autocracy, unfortunately, is still with us. Now, now, you've mentioned the street protests, Iraq, Lebanon, Algeria, and, and Sudan as well. Uh, has the nature of the street protests that we're seeing today in these countries, is it different from the protests uh, of the Arab Spring that happened, as we said, nearly a decade ago? Is it a different sort of a protest? What's interesting is that the, the drivers behind the protests are the same. Um, if we think about what people demanded uh, in 2011, freedom, dignity, bread, they are pretty much the same uh, demands that people are articulating today, also demanding the fall of the regime. But the methods are different because people have had a decade of learning when it comes to mobilization. We've had obviously technological advancements, which mean that people are more connected online than ever before. And unfortunately, we also have leaders who have had a whole decade of also observing how other leaders have responded to protests and uh, in a way improved their coercive measures as well. So we've had authoritarian learning as well as mobilization uh, uh, evolution. So it's a race between the two. But what gives me hope is that the street is, is usually that one step ahead and uh, autocratic governments kind of try to play catch up. Uh, and I think regardless, this, this uh, fundamental human right of, of wanting dignity and, and, and a decent living is not something that can be um, completely crushed, no matter how autocratic a government can be. Do you think, I mean, going back to 2011, that there was perhaps a naive hope among the protesters that 
somehow the West, uh, the UK, the United States, that they would embrace and come to the aid of, of, of the protesters. That didn't happen. And that naivete has disappeared now. There's a, a more pragmatic approach to the protest. There's no expectation that the West will come and, uh, and support them. Yes, absolutely. I agree completely. In 2011, we had, for example, a, an administration in the United States with President Obama uh, being very vocal in support of protests in the region, saying all the right things, but unfortunately not doing any of the right things. So there was a huge disconnect between rhetoric and action on part of the United States in particular and the West in general. But at the time, the people on the street believed that the US was on their side and was going to help them one way or another. Now, how that help was going to materialize, it wasn't clear. But people just expected something. Now they've had almost a decade of looking back and, and realizing that they cannot rely on external powers to help them. And they know very well that this is their fight. It's a domestic fight. And that's what's interesting about the latest waves, whether Iraq, whether Lebanon, What's interesting is people have also been very aware and vocal about this. They are saying, you know what, we do not want the West to come and help us and rescue us. In fact, we do not want the autocrats and we do not want the West. It's not either or. Uh, they feel that they, um, you know, just have their own uh, uh, national interests uh, at heart. And, and they don't expect anything from, from these external powers, which I think is a healthy thing. Yeah, I think in a way, it, it, it's more empower, much more empowering when, when you put it that way, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, here we have a younger generation that wants to do it for itself. And here, I don't want to overemphasize the role of uh, the media and the social media. However, with the world being more interconnected than ever before, this young generation has grown up with a screen in front of it. And this screen allows people access to the rest of the world and they can see there is another model out there. There is another way that this uh, uh, governance uh, model that they have been subjected to doesn't have to be their destiny. And so it is about saying, look, we have seen other places in the world live differently and we also want these rights that these other people in the world enjoy. Um, so it's a very different uh, configuration um, of power. And this is one of the reasons why I am hopeful um, about the future of the region, despite the current setbacks, because it is this new aware uh, generation that is more self-reliant that is eventually going to be forming the leadership of the future. Now, look, leadership... Um... That's the issue, isn't it? It's leadership is an issue everywhere we look in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis. But if I was to ask you to rank leadership ability in, in the MENA region, who would you place at the top of the field and, and why? Okay, depends what you mean by leadership ability. <laughs> um, if, if we're talking just in general parameters, I would say these young people are, are what I would bet on. It's very difficult for people to build something new. It's much easier to say what you don't want. So it's not going to happen anytime soon that these young people protesting today are going to suddenly uh, be in power and know what to do. However, there is a young generation that's educated, 
that's connected across borders, that's trying to learn from the experiences of others, that is aware that you need to be strategic. Right now, the odds are against them because the old dinosaurs are still in power one way or another. But eventually, I always say this, these dinosaurs are going to die. They may think they want to live forever, but but they won't. And uh, the countries will move in a, in a better direction. And right now, when it comes to the countries in the region, I have most hope for Tunisia because uh, not just of the uh, political compromises that are going on in Tunisia that are allowing the country to move towards uh, power sharing uh, in a way that moves uh, very far away from the power sharing model seen in Iraq and uh, Lebanon, which is based on allocation, based uh, on religion or whatever. In, In Tunisia, it is very much about negotiation and contesting uh, elections in a free and uh, fair way. But at the same time, we also have a role for these youth that I talked about, the aware, educated, connected youth. What gives me hope is that the uh, Tunisian uh, authorities engage with these people. They, they have them as members of parliament. They have them as government advisors. They have them as ministers. Uh, civil society is playing a huge and important role. So uh, do labor unions. So for me, Tunisia ranks at the top because of this uh, open, uh, engaged model towards uh, uh, governance. At the very bottom, sadly, I would put lots of countries in the region, uh, Syria being one of them for uh, the obvious reasons of having a regime slaughtering its uh, own citizens in huge numbers with impunity. And what about, uh, well, I don't know, Sisi in Egypt? Where, where would he rank? <laughs> well, um, again, uh, here we, we don't have cases of uh, people being slaughtered in large numbers, but we have um, a regime that is more autocratic than uh, the Mubarak regime, unfortunately. So I would definitely put it towards the uh, bottom uh, uh, side of the scale. Now, I'm going to bring you back to the Gulf because you've got leaders there. Mohammed bin Salman, of course, is very, very highly uh, critiqued in, in, in the West. Uh, he's he's running a what has been called a, a country of fear, regime of fear. But then you look at Mohammed bin Zayed, who's being saluted, the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, the de facto leader of the United Arab Emirates, as a very wily, clever leader who's punching above uh, his weight and putting uh, the UAE into a really significant position in terms of uh, the power plays within the region. What do you make of Mohammed bin Zayed? Uh, I mean, it's a different style of leadership from uh, what we're seeing in Saudi Arabia. I mean, yeah, maybe some political interests are aligned, but the style is very different. Mohammed bin Salman is taking a very uh, flamboyant uh, uh, style. Uh, everything is, is, is being kind of tuned to the max uh, in Saudi Arabia to drive a point forward to basically assert the authority of this leader. Uh, in UAE, they uh, in general are taking a, a more, I would say, nuanced approach sometimes, sometimes also flamboyant, uh, such as what we're seeing um, in Libya, for example, with the UAE role there being rather, uh, rather obvious. But when it comes to domestic issues, 
we have to remember that there is no freedom of expression in UAE. UAE is not a democratic country. There is no civil society in UAE. And there is heavy self-censorship and surveillance. And so, yes, the style may not be as out there and flamboyant, but ultimately it remains an autocratic uh, model of power. Now, now finally, we, we've spoken and you've spoken, I think, really eloquently about the potential and the power of young Arabs. I mean, they want a new deal. They deserve a new deal. Do you think they're going to get it? They're going to get it, but maybe after you and I are, are no longer here. <laughs> <laughs> and when these these young people are no longer young people, I mean, realistically speaking, I think we need a generation to really see the um, results of the uh, Arab Spring protest of 2011. So we've got 20 more years before we see something fundamentally change. I have hope. As I said, the components um, for success are there. But first, the current political class needs to go and this needs time. Lena, thank you very much. Thank you. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Alina Khatib, director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House. She's the author of Filming the Modern Middle East and Image Politics in the Middle East, both published by I.B. Torres. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. And if you are a student or retired, we are now offering a new rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.